0: I want you to picture just for a moment that you are standing on the observation deck of the tallest building in the world. You may or may not be afraid of heights, like me. I have a hard time even picturing that, but... But someplace like the Burj Khalifa that is the tallest building in the world and also has, now has the tallest observation deck in the world. And you're standing there, and I want you to imagine that observation deck is a fully glass floor, nowhere to hide. Not just a little bit of glass that the brave can stand on, but everywhere is glass. And you can look down almost 2,000 feet below you. I can remember being in a, on a cathedral in Vienna and walking up the iron stairs on the side, just couldn't wait till I'd get to the top so I could get a floor because it was just that weaved iron grating. And I got to the top and guess what was there? A larger weaved iron grating that you could see through. But I want you to picture yourself on that glass floor and what your fear would be like. Now I want you to picture yourself in the Grand Canyon on the South Rim. And you're standing there over as close to the edge as you dare to get. And below you is a drop of 6,000 feet straight down. There's no glass floor here. The surroundings overwhelm you. And you're drawn to the edge, but you're fearful. Because you can't even see the bottom. Which fear is greater? Greater. Which fear is more like the fear of the Lord? Is the fear of the Lord like the one for you, like the one of the glass building, the glass observation deck, 2,000 feet above the air that you have no way of falling out of? You're really safe. It may make your stomach a little queasy, but there's really nothing to fear unless there's an earthquake or some weird thing that happens. You are safe there. But on the edge of the South Rim... One false step, and you lose your life, which people do on a regular basis there. I would submit to you that is true fear because there's actually a risk. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord, sometimes it is mollified, that it's not really fear, it's reverence. And it is reverence, don't get me wrong, but is it only reverence? Is is the fear of the Lord a real fear even for his redeemed people? And if we do have an understanding of and a growing understanding of the fear of the Lord, if that is the way we think about the Lord, then what does that mean for our everyday life? How does that affect things? If it's only a fear that, yeah, I could be dangerous, but I know it's not, it's a glass floor, and not the fear of it is dangerous because one false step and I could die the same as dozens of other people do every year, how does it affect our life. Is it the Lord that we fear or is it something else in the world? Is it the Lord that we trust or is it something else because the fear is directed in other places? That's the message for us today from Isaiah. Isaiah has a message from the Lord and a message to his people. And that message is, if you are Christ's, Isaiah would say as well, then You must fear the Lord and how you interact in your world will be different than those who don't. And he bases all of the distinction between those who fear the Lord and those who don't by telling us what that means between those who fear and those who don't. But the reality is the Lord is with us all. Here's the question. Is he with you today in judgment? Or is he with you today in hope? and light, and peace, and salvation. Because that's how Isaiah splits it in half. Carl prayed several times in his prayer that there's no middle ground in this, and there is no middle ground here. And this morning, we have to ask, where do you stand? Not only where do you stand on your profession, but where does your life stand? What kind of profession does your life reveal? Is your profession one thing and your life another? calls into question your profession and it's reality, doesn't it? So this is for us today. This is another one of those passages that we look at from the Old Testament. And there are people who would say the Old Testament has nothing to do with us in today's world. And I would say it has everything to do with us. And if I even now, since I've been in this text for several weeks, it's like this is the text I would take you to say you don't think it has anything to do with us today? What about, what about Isaiah chapter 8? Because it speaks directly to our world today. You know why? Because evil doesn't change and neither does God. And so his people don't change in their faith and trust in him. And evil rises against God in the same way. Sometimes it's stronger than others. But the story is the same. And since Christ is eternal and Christ's work is finished. Then the story for us as believers is the same as well. Isaiah chapter 8. Stand, if you will, as you turn there. I'm going to begin in verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying... Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses we are shown three truths concerning the promise of Emmanuel. Three truths concerning the promise of Emmanuel. There's comparisons and contrasts throughout this entire section and I'm hoping through the outline to really bring that to light for us and the first truth that we see is God is with us when thwarting the enemy's plans now that should say verses 9 and 10 on your outline and I think it says verse 11 it should say 9 and 10 remember that 9 and 10 are transition verses for us as we see many times in the book of Isaiah, there are these transition verses that lead us from one section to another. They, they reach back to the former section, but also reach forward to the section in front of us. And we have this picture in the last couple of chapters of God dealing with the king, Ahaz, and his people. And he has provided signs for him. He's provided the one sign of the first son of Isaiah that's mentioned. And his name translates "a remnant shall return." And then we see another sign that's that's given that we said was was a, a future sign fulfilled in Christ, the sign of the Christ Child, Emmanuel. And then he moves to yet another sign, another child of Isaiah that 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 reminds us that this is going to be speedy, and the the attack is going to be with. Haste that what God has promised is going to happen quickly. And so in this section, he is constantly holding before the king and therefore his people as well, in whom will you place your trust? And behind the scenes, in the historical record that we've learned, Isaiah is being, or Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, is being pressed in upon by the northern kingdom, Ephraim, and Syria, to join their alliance against the superpower the rising superpower, but still the superpower of the day, Assyria. And the king, instead of turning to the Lord, will turn toward the superpower himself, the king of Assyria. He doesn't want to deal with the middlemen and and risk things that way. He thinks he can go to the most powerful earthly king and put his faith and trust there. And I think all this section in Isaiah is happening before he actually does that. But we know, in second Kings and Second Chronicles, that he does indeed do that. He eschews the, the advice of Isaiah and goes to Assyria with all the wealth of the holy place and the king's palace and it doesn't go well for them. This section tells us that the destruction will come and overtake the northern kingdom, but it won't just stop there. God will whistle and call up um, the, 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 Assyrians, or the Assyrians, and he'll also call the Egyptians, and, and he'll bring them and overtake the northern kingdom, and those two smoldering firebrands of, of the king of Syria and the king of Ephraim, they're nothing compared to the sovereign hand of the Lord, and they will, Assyrians will come and overtake them, but then the Assyrians will also come, and it won't move on into the southern kingdom, on into Jerusalem, and the flood of judgment will be so high that it will come up even unto their neck. But even in those words, even up unto their neck is a measure of hope, is there not? Because it doesn't overtake their head. And so the remnant is constantly before us in this section, and this section is the message to the remnant. This this section is the message to the remnant of how they are to live as this judgment overtakes their land, because God is with them. And what we will see is this contrast between the ways that God are with people. So in verse 9, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will not come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. So there's the message. Now remember, God is raising up this nation to come against his disobedient people. He's the one raising them up. But he also puts a fence around it because he is the one who determines judgment. He is the one who determines how far that judgment will go. And we'll see very soon in just a few chapters that God will judge the Assyrians for their arrogance in doing what God whistled for them to come and do. So God is the sovereign one. And the message... To those nations is, you can do what you want. You can strap on your armor, but you're going to be shattered eventually. You can make your plans, but God's plans are the ones that will stand. This is why we started with singing Psalm 2 today. That wonderful psalm that reminds us that the kings of the earth who rise up against God, he who sits in the heavens scoffs at them. He just laughs at them because he has already appointed his king in Zion. So this is the truth of that being brought out. Come, you can do what you want, O nations, but it will come to nothing. Why? Emmanuel, for God is with us. And when I read that, I read with the emphasis on us. We've already seen Emmanuel mentioned several times in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And I think here the emphasis, not grammatically, but as we read it, should be, you can do all you want, but God is with us. You can come against us, but God is with us. Now, the truth of this passage will be that God is with everyone. But the implication of verse 10 is God is with his remnant in a special way. He's with his remnant for protection because he will not forsake his people. So God is with us when thwarting the enemy's plans. But then the whole passage begins to open up for us. Yahweh is with and speaks to his prophet. We're going to see in verses 11, 12, and 13, this comparison of things that the exile, the prophet, and the people that follow him, things they're not to do and things that they are to do. So, first, don't do these things. Look at verse 11. For now, that's what ties us to. Verses 9 and 10, these transition verses, that's why I connected them more with verse 11 because verse 11 starts out with this 4 that connects them. For Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. Now get the picture of this. The strong hand of Yahweh is his power. So this is the power of the Almighty on Isaiah. Isaiah. So when Isaiah says, he warned me, do you think Isaiah intends to heed the warning? The power of the almighty creator, Yahweh, rests upon him when he speaks to him. It's a different way than we've seen it said before, isn't it? It's a stronger way that God is coming to Isaiah with this message. And this message is to Isaiah and his followers. This message is to the remnant, those who want to stay obedient So he spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me, first of all, not to walk as unbelievers walk. Michael, why don't you just put all four of these up there, the next four. Don't walk as unbelievers walk. Don't think like unbelievers think. Don't fear what unbelievers fear and don't dread. I think it's don't dread what unbelievers dread, but the scripture just says don't dread. And I think this goes past just their experience here. This is, these are the marching orders for the people of God when they deal with struggles on the earth. Now look what he says first. Don't walk as unbelievers walk. That's the second half of verse 11. He warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So this is that metaphorical use of the word walk. Don't, don't don't engage in the lifestyle, the thought processes, the, what, the, what these people think. And notice it's that term again, this people, not my people, this people, the disobedient people. Don't walk like them. Don't do the things that they do. Don't neglect the word. Don't pursue the world. Don't walk like them. That leads to a different place than my people will be led. But not only Just this general term of don't walk as unbelievers walk. But then he gets more specific. Don't think like unbelievers think. Look at verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Now what in the world is this? I mean, we live in the world of conspiracy theories, don't we? They're around every corner. The right, the left, the center. And none of the things that you believe are on your side of the aisle are conspiracy theories, but all the ones on the other side are conspiracy theories, right? We live in this world where wacko thoughts happen all the time. Is this one of those? Is this, or is this a, a, a true conspiracy, like Ahaz trying to go to a foreign king instead of his god? And all the court intrigue that would be around that. The people who wanted to follow Ahaz because they thought he was right. The people who wanted to follow Ahaz because they wanted to keep their head the people who didn't think Ahaz was right. The people who had, you know, their mom and dad lived in Syria. So they thought the king ought to go to get help from Syria. So maybe they would stay alive. All of the intrigue that would go around these political decisions. We don't have any of that in our world, do we? Where there's theories and people on one side or the other. And... But here, I think it's even more than that. I think this is Isaiah himself. Isaiah is a conspiratist. Isaiah is the one who's coming against the king. And the technical definition of the world, that's what it would be, right? The conspiracy overthrows who is in power. And the king is saying, I'm going this way. The prophet is saying, you need to go this way. You you need to turn to your God. Your God is the one who is the one who is strength and power and wisdom. You need to turn there. And so Isaiah is the conspirator. He's the one who's coming against the king. Do you think that would get him in trouble? That would get him in trouble with the king. That would get him in trouble with all the people supporting the king. And so God says to Isaiah, don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Don't don't enter into their thought process that would do this. That would call obedience to your God the wrong thing to do. Don't think like that. Now we're going to put more flesh on all of this. We're going to go through this first in these verses. We're going to go through that as it would have been for Ahaz and Israel. Then we're going to, because already you're going to be thinking, well, yeah, you better tell us how to do that, because I can see all kinds of applications for that. Wait, we will get there. Let's feel it first in its original context, then see the Christ fulfillment, and then go back and see how it fits for us. So don't walk as unbelievers walk, and that first subcategory is don't think like unbelievers think, but also don't fear what unbelievers fear or dread. Look at verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Probably nor be in dread of what they dread. But what are they fearing? They're fearing men. Human governments, human armies. Now remember, Syria and the northern kingdom have already come against the southern kingdom once. And gotten very close to Judah. Lost a lot of people. People were taken into captivity. Many strong men were killed. Armed men were killed. So there is a little bit of fear. Remember, when, when, when the king and the people see that the armies are sitting out on the edge of, the, of, of, their, uh, of their land, what do they do? They flutter like leaves in a tree. So there is fear, and that fear is of men. We can say they could fear all kinds of things, but we can sum it all up and say it's the fear of man. He says, don't fear that. Don't fear what they fear and don't dread what they dread. In fact, don't dread at all. That's the clarity of the text. Do not be in dread. In other words, don't have anything that causes you to be overwhelmed. That's not the way my people live, God says to Isaiah. So don't walk as unbelievers walk. Don't think like unbelievers think. Don't fear what unbelievers fear and don't dread. But as Scripture always does, we're not sitting here going, okay, but what am I supposed to do? Verse 13, but Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh the Lord of the armies, is that appropriate since they're afraid of a king and an army? Your covenant God who is also the Lord of the armies, him shall you honor as holy. So the first thing you do is you honor Yahweh as holy, him you shall honor as holy. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, if the character of God is holy, and some people would define that, that's the character of his character, right? All of his other attributes can be summed up that no matter what they are or not, they're all holy. They're all righteous. They're all other And if that is the nature of God, then if we are to honor God as holy, then that means not only lip service to saying, yeah, we know you're holy, God, but it's it's the practical outworking in our life that we make decisions in line with the fact that our God is holy, that we do things and don't do things because our God is a holy God. And he has chosen a people for himself and set them out on a path. And especially in the nation of Israel, All of the nations should have been able to look to Israel, look to Mount Zion, and see the people of God living in a certain way so that all their gaze was pointed to Yahweh, their God. His holiness should be manifested in his people. So to honor him as holy, the people of God are to look at God's character and have it affect their life. And if God is holy, and he's their covenant God, Yahweh, and he is the Lord of the armies, the spiritual heavenly myriads of army, why are you fearing men? It's nonsensical, isn't it? I mean, we put all those together, and we're going, duh, that's a no-brainer. And yet, that's what's going on. So honor Yahweh is holy, but also fear Yahweh and dread Yahweh. Look, as verse 13 continues. Let him, that is Yahweh, Sabaoth, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Not the men, not the armies, not any opposition or persecution that you may experience, but the Lord himself. And this is where I said earlier in the introduction that sometimes we want to water down this fear of the Lord because God loves his people. Jesus is closer than a brother. We, we are God's children. Children shouldn't fear their parents. Not in that way that, you know, they're shivering in a corner. So surely we shouldn't fear God like that. But if God is holy, and he is other, and the sum total of his attributes bring the glory that the Bible says that represents God, then if we are in his presence, even as his children, we should fear. Now that fear is not of death or judgment But it's fear of being in the presence of a holy God. It's the fine time that we would be like Isaiah, but we've already had our cleansing. Woe is me! I am undone! I'm melting! And then we remember Christ. Then we remember the sacrifice. Then we remember our advocate. And it doesn't diminish the fear that we have in front of this holy, sovereign God, but the fear is not directed toward our judgment. The fear is the reception of his glory. So the fear of the Lord. And let the Lord be your dread. You're tempted to dread or fear something else. Let God be your fear. Let God be your dread. If he is the the Lord of all the armies and the sovereign over the universe and everything that happens is under his control, what on earth would you fear anything that is under his control? What army would you fear that he is not the Lord of? And so it puts us in a position to reorient. So this is our heart status. This is our stance. This is where it starts. Don't walk or think or fear or dread what unbelievers do, but do honor Yahweh as holy, fear Yahweh, and dread Yahweh. Now, in our minds, maybe that famous story that from Chronicles of Narnia. That C.S. Lewis tells, where Susan says, Who is Aslan? Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Lucy says, Is he a man? "'A man,' said Mr. Beaver sternly. "'Certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who the king of the, the, king of the beast? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.'" "'Oh,' said Susan. "'I thought he was a man. "'Is he, is he quite safe? "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.'" That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the way we stand before our God. He's safe from judgment for those who are in Christ, but he's not safe when we try to live according to what we want to live. There's strong discipline, the hand of the Lord on us for us as believers, but he's good. He can be trusted. He can be trusted even when we have to wait, as we will see. Well, God is with us when thwarting the enemy's plans. Yahweh is with us and speaks to his prophet. But third, Yahweh reveals the nature of his presence. Now, Look at verse 14. Verse 14 sets up two ways that God is with people. And verses 15 through 22 pars those ways out. So verse 14 is our dividing point for the next 2 subpoints, And he will become a sanctuary, there's one group, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, shall be snared and taken. There's the second group. So let's deal with the first group First. The first group, to those who honor and fear him, he will be a sanctuary. Right there at the beginning of verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary, a holy place. A holy God who is revered as holy, honored as holy by his people, will be a holy place for his people. He will be a dwelling place. He will be security. He will be a sanctuary in the sense that they will be protected from evil. But the reason that will be there is because he dwells with them in his holiness. And he becomes a sanctuary. And what does it take to experience the Lord's presence as a sanctuary? Well, first, they will preserve the word. Look at verse 16. Bind up the testimony... Seal the teaching among my disciples. Now, what does this mean? If We bind something up. We're protecting it. We're, we're tying it all up so we don't lose any of it. If we seal it in that ancient Near Eastern time, we're, we're, we're sealing it so that nothing is taken from it or added to it. Put the seal on there so that when it's broken, we know that nobody has altered the document. ESV says testimony and teaching, some of yours may have the second word, and then again the the first word in verse 20 as Torah or law, and the Hebrew word behind that is Torah, but that doesn't really mean law, it means teaching, it means instruction, and we apply it many times to the first five books of the Bible and call it the law, but teaching is, is the way to think about this. There's a whole other topic of whether we should start thinking about Torah as teaching and whether it would continue to confuse us as much. But I won't go down that road this morning. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And that little word, my, it's translated most often as in. And I wonder whether it should be, whether that's the feeling that we have here. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching in my disciples you're giving this teaching to my disciples now remember noah noah isaiah has been called to preach to a people that is not going to hear right and he's to preach in a way that they won't hear lest they turn from their wicked ways and follow God So he sent to this audience that he knows from the very beginning that there will be many who do not hear, who are not able to hear. And he's supposed to even teach in a way that furthers their guilt of their own actions. So in one way, this is in my people. They're the ones who are holding on to my teaching. They're the ones who are holding on to my testimony. Bind it up, seal it in them. And this is really a foreshadowing of the new covenant, is it not? Where the word of the, the, the law is written where? On our hearts, right? And, and the word is bound up in our hearts. We, we have hidden God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. So that's the idea that's being done here. The word of God is being bound up in his people. They're the ones that keep it, love it, cherish it. They're the ones who protect it. They're the ones who stand on it rather than other things. They're the ones who fight against the error of twisting it because they sealed it up, they bound it up. Those are the people God's presence, God with us, Emmanuel, is a holy dwelling. It is a sanctuary. But also, they not only preserve the word, but they will wait on Yahweh. Verse 17. I will wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Now, here in verse 16 and 17, there's discrepancy on who's speaking. And you notice I didn't address it in verse 16. Is it Isaiah that's speaking, telling his people, bind up the testimony and the teaching among, the, among his disciples, those who are following his word, and join him in waiting on Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, hiding his face from God's people? Or is this God himself speaking? Some people are convinced that the idea of Emmanuel flows so much through this text that this is actually Emmanuel speaking. It is is Christ himself speaking to Isaiah. I don't want to go that far, but we can see the clear ties when we start seeing the fulfillment in the New Testament. I think this is Isaiah telling his disciples, and it very easily could be God telling Isaiah, I'm binding up the word in my disciples and those who follow me. Whichever one it means, the meaning is clear for us, isn't it? This is the way that we live. And not only are we preserving the word, but we're waiting on Yahweh. We're waiting on him. Doesn't look like he's moving very much under Ahaz, does it? They've already been attacked once, the threat of attack is here. For the believers, if, if Ahaz goes towards the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser third, if he goes in that direction, they know there will even be more judgment heaped upon the nation that they will feel the extent of. Wouldn't that tempt some of them to act? Be like the king who doesn't want to wait on the priest anymore to light the incense, so he goes in and does it himself? You probably never do that in your life, do you? Think God isn't acting, so you're going to take things in your own hand? This is the command to us, wait on the Lord. He has the perfect timing. He has perfect knowledge, and he's in perfect control. Why on earth, Isaiah and the remnant, would we think about doing something outside of his divine plan? Why would we think of acting before he acts? So these people who will... Honor and fear God and receive his presence as a sanctuary will preserve the word. They will wait on Yahweh and they will hope in Yahweh. That's right, what happens at the end of verse 17. And I will hope, or some verses say wait eager, some versions say wait eagerly. The idea is the same. There's an eager expectation that God, when he works, will work in a good way according to his will and we don't need to worry or fret or fear in the midst. And Why? Because we're honoring him as holy. And this is what it looks like to do that. But fourthly, there will be signs to the lost. Look at verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. So is this God saying that he's given these signs, and it's his children, are, the, are all of the people who are believing in him, or is this Isaiah? I think it's Isaiah with his children who are signs. So the children are the signs, their name meaning is the portent, that, that picture is something that's yet to happen. So both children are signs, the name, She'er Jashub, a remnant shall return, the name that was written on the tablet or the piece of metal that was to be seen by all long before the child was born, Mayer, Shallow, Hasbaz, the, the, the speedy to the spoil, spoiled fast to the plunder, so many different translations of that, I can't keep them straight. But the, the, the names themselves are the signs. The messages behind those names are the portents. And verse 17 tells us, or verse 18, I, Isaiah saying, I and the children who Yahweh has given me are signs of importance in Israel from Yahweh, Sabaoth, who dwells on Mount Zion. So God is giving these as a message that God is powerful and God is sovereign and God is in control of all of what's happening. And the very end phrase kind of tacked on who dwells on Mount Zion, what's that remind us of? God's presence with his people. This is where he says he will dwell. So this is still Emmanuel. And this is how God will be a sanctuary to those who honor and fear him. But there's a fifth. Look at the beginning of verse 20. Skip over to verse 20. They will obey the word. To the teaching and to the testimony. Now we'll put that in context in just a minute. But anything that goes on, this is the cry of God's people. To the word of God where God has spoken, what God has revealed to us. Everything we know about his character and how he's working in the world and what he intends to do, that is where our foundation is. That's where we turn. And these are the marks of those who honor and fear him to whom God in Emmanuel is a sanctuary. But there's another group, isn't there? Those who disobey him, he is with them in destruction. Go back to verse 14. We come into these familiar ideas, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that, this is the way God, he presents himself through the signs and the portents, through his word, through the, the prophet that he speaks to, the prophet that he speaks to to give this message, the people who take that and turn it upside down, those are the people who are stumbling upon the message of God. And therefore, they were stumbling on Yahweh himself. They were stumbling on their God. God has placed this in front of them. And instead of believing and bowing and trusting and waiting, they've taken measures in led by Ahaz into their own hands. And therefore, they stumble against, over what God has said. This takes us right back to the calling of Isaiah Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now we know these verses in relation to Christ, which we'll come to in a minute, but receive them as the nation of Israel should receive them. If you're going to be a people who does not trust, who does not wait, who does not honor Yahweh as holy, who does not fear him, who does not make him their dread and no man, if you're going to be that people, then you're stumbling over not only the commands of God, but all the blessings of God. You will not taste of them because God is with his people as a sanctuary when that is what they do. If you're not, you will stumble You will be led into sin. You will capitulate. You will be taken into sin. You will be snared by your own thoughts and the thoughts of the world. Look at verse 19. There's four marks here that we must look at for those who disobey. They will not seek truth from God. Look at verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So what's going on here? They're not willing to trust the prophet who's speaking for God, right? They're not willing to trust him. So where are they going to go? they got to go somewhere because they don't have all the answers. So do they go to the ones who are speaking to the dead? They go to the ones who are the mediums claiming to have some mystical powers, They go to those ones who are strictly and completely forbidden in passages like Deuteronomy 18, 9-12. The God's people should not be doing that. You see, if you're going to turn away from the light, the truth of the Lord, then you have no place to go but the darkness. And the dead have no more answers than the living. We'll read that in Scripture in Isaiah later on. The dead have no more answers than the living. They don't know anything more. So when people turn their hearts away from God, they will not see truth from God. Now, this is part of the signs and portents of God and the children that's been given, right? Se- sealing up and binding the word of God. We're the people who have the ability to see this kind of deception. In the beginning of the 20th century, Houdini was one who saw this. Houdini at one time had tried this, the great magician and illusionist, he, at one time, tried to make contact with his passed-on mother through mediums. And he realized when he tried to do that the kind of hopelessness that it inspired because it was all a sham. Here, here's a guy who made his living deceiving people's eyes, right? And he began to see the deceit that was involved in this. And so what he would do is, when he, before he would go into town... This this sounds kind of like some of the the name-it-and-claim-it people and the false healing people that send people into town to begin with to find the right people to bring up on stage. This is what he would do with people. He would send people into the town and they would go connect with the mediums. This was very popular in the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century. And he would send people in to connect with those mediums and those sorcerers and those fortune tellers and the ones who would run the seances. And they would come in and they would would sit down with one of them and act like an interested party. But they had the eyes to see all the deception that they were doing, all the illusions that they were creating. They'd go back and they'd tell Houdini and part of his act in that town that night would be to call them out and reveal all their secrets of how they were doing what they were doing and humiliate them right there. Now, we don't want to be the people who are trying to humiliate people, but we have the word of God. And it's our job to stand upon that word of God in front of the illusionist, in front of the magicians of our day who would call sin good and good sinful and stand in front of them and and say with all gusto, thus saith the Lord. Why would we go anywhere else but to the word of the Lord? And that's what the question is embedded right there in verse 19. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And what is the answer that we should all scream from that? No, they should not do that. So those who disobey him... And his presence is with them in destruction. They will not seek truth from God. But also they will arrogantly curse both king and God for their judgment. Look at verse 21. Let's back up to verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony... If they will not speak according to the word, it is because they have no dawn. So that's, I skipped over this. It's, it's part of the, the not seeking truth from God, but it gives us the reason. They have no light. They have no dawn. They have no presence of God. They have no presence of his truth. Now that idea of dawn and darkness will carry us through the next several verses. But verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry now that's the result of God's we've already read all about that in in the last chapter earlier in this chapter and in chapter 7 greatly distressed and hungry and when they are hungry they will turn back to God repent and seek his face is that what it says they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. When I was a kid, I used to love the Peanuts comic, and this is Snoopy on the doghouse with the Red Baron, right? Ah, Cursing the Red Baron. Only this has eternal consequences, and it's not a comic. When people are sealed up in their disobedience and their hearts are hardened... They look to the God who's causing the destruction, intended that destruction intended to bring them to himself, and they curse him for that destruction as if it is his fault and not theirs. They turn against their king and against their God. They turn their faces upward with their contemptuous yelling and complaining about their situation. Third, they will, stretch, they will search the earth for relief, but find only darkness, right in verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They look to the heavens, and they curse the God who could rescue them. They look to the earth, but the God who could rescue them is present with them in darkness, and that's all they see, because he's present with them in judgment. Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. There is no hope no hope in what they see, no hope in who they experience, no hope in the land, no hope for the relief of their hunger. They look and they seek, but they have no light. So all they find is darkness and that will in turn lead them to deeper darkness in verse 22b. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's not enough that they look to the earth and find distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish But because they keep their fist and their face turned toward God in disobedience, God thrusts them further into what they only deserve for their disobedience. Now, if we just stop there, we're kind of dismayed, aren't we? Chapter 9, verse 1 in the Hebrew text is actually verse 23 of chapter 8. We're going to get into this next week, but I want you to just taste the hope that's here for us. Verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for who her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So again, our remnant comes. What is that light? What is the light that is seen? Even those who are thrust into darkness, if they turn, if they repent, if they turn to the God who they had forsaken to begin with, he stands ready to bring light to them so that they move into him being a presence, God with them, Emmanuel, as a sanctuary. Well, this passage has all these connections to the New Testament. And we saved them to the end because I don't want to preach all of these passages. I just want to remind you of a few passages. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We've already heard 1 Peter 2 read. I want you to look at 1 Peter 3. Beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You can hear some of the same themes that we just read in chapter 8 of Isaiah. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who reviled your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So there are some people who say, this is is Isaiah 8 quoted right here and applied directly to Christ. And some people would say, well, that's who's being talked about in Isaiah 8. Well, I think who's being talked about in Isaiah 8 is exactly who Isaiah says is being talked about, and that's Yahweh. But 1 Peter 3 tells us that Christ is God, that Christ is the God-man, that Christ comes and he is not only fully man, but he was fully God when he came to the face of the earth. And so the, the New Testament writers have no problem making this connection because Christ is fully God. And so we have the same command, that we, are not, that we are honoring God. And in the New Testament, as we bring it in chapter 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's the same application as we heard for the P- Old Testament people of God. It's the same application in the same uh, situation, right? Fearing those who would punish you for doing righteous doing good things. Now, that's the world we live in right now, isn't it? Our government, our news media, the most powerful voices. I don't mean powerful for truth, but I mean the ones that are carrying the day are the ones who are advocating for all kinds of things that are against the word of God. And God's people, if we're to sanctify Christ, if we're to honor Christ as holy in our lives, what do we say? To the teaching, to the testimony. And we look back to the Word of God, and we stand for what is right, and we do what is right in the face of all of those who say we're conspirators. And we're already in that position, aren't we? Oh, you think marriage should be between one man and a one woman? That's an ancient argument, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's five years ago, for crying out loud, that we were arguing about that. That's past news now. Now we're talking about whether people are men or women. And do we know? No, we can't really know who's a man and who's a woman. We can't really know that because that might hurt somebody's feelings. And those are the people who rule the day. Those are government officials and news agencies. Those are all the social media companies. And you and I, when we stand for what is right, we're conspirators against the truth, against science in all of those people's minds. And we're not supposed to fear them. Because we know that's not conspiracy. They're the conspirators. They're the ones that are taking the word of God and turning it upside down. Now this is now. listen, I, I want you to feel this, but I don't want us to go out here self-righteous. I want us to go out here ready to go into battle. Right? We're, we're not just standing here. All those people are broken. All those people need Christ. All those people need prayer. All those people need to be friends with somebody different than they are now. Those people need you, the one who God is with as a sanctuary, to see what righteousness looks like. They need you. They don't need us hiding out in our towers. We used to talk about ivory towers of academics and university. Well, now we have the ivory towers of the church. We can sit in here and point our fingers at all those ungodly people, and then we go out to lunch and we go about our ways. God says you are signs and portents. You are his children. You have the word of God. You are the ones that go out into the world and face those unrealities with the reality of God's word. Because we sanctify Christ as holy. Luther says this. Therefore it amounts to this. In your heart, says Peter, you are to sanctify him. That means that the Lord himself appoints anything for us, be it good or evil, be it weal or woe, be it shame or honor, prosperity or adversity. I am not only to consider it good, but even as holy, and that, it, that this is nothing but a precious blessing of which I am unworthy, that it should come even to me. How many times do we think about this world and our place in it as a blessing to go into the world to the testimony, to the teaching and be persecuted for it. Thank you, Lord. Because those signs importance, God will use to draw many unto himself. But this isn't the only touch point. Carl already read from First Peter, the, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, how that was um, taken. I want you to turn to Romans but I see another prominent way. It's also mentioned in Matthew. We're not going to go to all the passages. We don't have time to do that. It's not the point today. I want you go to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. This is Paul's argument loving his people, Israel wishing that if he could, he could give his own life, salvation for their salvation. He makes a long argument here, but look what he says about Israel's unbelief. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, that's a quote from Isaiah 28, where God places the cornerstone, and God is the cornerstone, and that cornerstone is Christ himself. This is brought out in Matthew as well. So every time we read in the Old Testament the, the stone of stumbling, and God turns that into cornerstone using all of that imagery, which we don't have time to get into all of that. It's all preparing us for the coming of the Messiah, the Holy One, the Messiah who would come and live and die and be raised again and then ascended and seating at the right hand of the Father so that all those who believe in him that did not stumble, That's exactly what Israel was doing under Ahaz. God became to them a stumbling stone, a snare, a trap, because they did not receive his word by faith, even though they could see nothing of its truth. They had to wait on him and trust in him, and they did not do that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10. We have two of the passages here quoted from Isaiah 8, out of verse 17, out of verse 18. Hebrews 2.10, For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him there's Isaiah 8:17 speaking of the Messiah himself and again behold I and the children God has given me there's Isaiah 8:18 8, speaking of the Messiah himself Since, therefore, the children share in in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, referring back to chapter 1, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How do we live in this world in a way that shows our trust in Christ, our dread and our fear is of Christ? How do we live in a way that says we are waiting for him and his return? Because we know the truth of the testimony. That he and his children, quoting Isaiah chapter 8, to refer to the Messiah and all those who will believe. This is our role in this world. Oswald Chambers says, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. And when you do not fear God, you fear everything else. That's a true statement. That's our role is to fear God. We live in a world that requires truth. We live in a world that requires us to wait on God and hope joyfully for Christ's return because it doesn't look like God is moving in so many ways, does it? I mean, there are so many times we can look out at our landscape and we can say, where's God? Where is he? Why is he delaying? And that leads us into fear and dread of the world. If he delays any more, then such and such is going to happen. But we are the ones who wait because we know that Christ is coming again. So my question to you today is, first of all, Is God present with you today in judgment, or is he present with you today as a sanctuary? Have you placed your faith and trust in this Jesus who came as the Messiah, as the Old Testament promised, who lived a perfect life and died according to the Old Testament Scriptures, was raised again according to the Old Testament Scriptures, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and whom we're told that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him and is in union with him, has eternal life guaranteed for God to be a sanctuary to us forever. Where do you stand on that? Have you repented of the worldliness, the trust in the world, the fear of man, the trust in your own um, will and works for your own salvation? Because he is with you currently today in judgment. The blessing is, he has not taken you home or returned yet, so you still have time to repent which means to turn away from you and turn to Christ. But if you are already here in Christ, where do you stand? Would the world know that you are a sign and portent of the living God? Are you honoring Christ as holy in every decision in your life? When you go to make decisions in your life, are you making them based on the nature and character and work of Christ and his presence with you and the Spirit's guidance with you? Are you ready to stand in the face of evil even if it costs you your life because you know that's a righteous thing to do and it is an honor before your king. All through Europe, there are these little brass stones that are found in the sidewalks. In Berlin alone, there are over 8,000 of them. Stolpersteins is what they're called. And they're... uh, a monument of sorts to those who were taken off to concentration camps in World War II. There are tens of thousands throughout Europe. There are over 8,000 in Berlin alone. The German artist who came up with this in 1992, Gunter Demnig, said that he wanted to do this to commemorate the victims of the Holocaust. And each block begins with this, Here lived, and then someone's name. And it's placed at the exact place that they were taken into captivity by the Germans. So all over Europe, you see these stones. The craftsman who makes these stones, Michael Friedrichs Friedlander, he said this, I can't think of a better form of remembrance. If you want to read the stone, you must bow before the The victim. If you want to avoid the stumbling stone of Christ and make him your sanctuary, you must bow before the victim who purchased forgiveness of sin. If we can have little brass stones in a sidewalk that will convey a message of heartfelt remembrance, surely you and I can be those stones to a lost and dying world that as those people begin to stumble and are entrapped and ensnared by their own will and their own sin because they want to turn away from Christ, we can be the people who honor Christ as holy, who worship him, who fear him, who wait on him, and all the while, we have bound up the testimony and we are giving the word as a sign and a portent of what to come. That's the joy that we have. And we can do that in the midst of this crazy world because when God is with us, God is for us. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for your mercy to us, for your constant admonitions to us from your word. We ask you to make us those people, Lord, those people who fear you. Those people who fear you and don't fear those around us. Those people who are like the sons of Issachar. That we understand the times and know what God's people should do. For you are advancing this kingdom according to your plans and your pleasure. And we ask to be not a people who fears men. People who can just kill the body. But to fear you. Who have sent your son to redeem us so that we might have life, and then send us on a mission so that others might have life. So let us, Father, increase in our love for you, increase our own sanctification by considering and meditating upon and applying what we learn about your holiness, about what it means to fear you and you alone and what that that promotes in our life the winsome joy of not fearing anything that goes on around us and that perpetual happiness of seeing other people come to Christ. So make it so for us, Father, because in this world we can be fearful, we can be angry, we, we can be overturned because of the way evil is called good and good called evil and truth is maligned and words change meaning every day. But we're thankful that you don't change. Neither does your message And we ask you to cause us to be more faithful because you were for us as you were with us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.